0: Sometimes exhausted, with toil and endeavor, I wish I could sleep forever and ever. But then this reflection my longing allays, I shall be doing it one of these days. This is the poem, The Cure for Exhaustion, by Pite Hein, who also went by the pseudonym uh, kumbel, which means tombstone. And what's the cure for exhaustion, according uh, to Hein? Death but what would you expect from a poet named Tombstone? I mean, really. The author of Hebrews, he's already challenged us to confront our fear of death. The fear of death can make us slaves, uh, and if we repress it, it can drive us. And when death has power over us, as articulated by Heinz's poem, the result is perpetual restlessness and even exhaustion. Many of us, we've shared his thought. Have you ever thought, you know, we're going to rest when we die, so strive on now. Make the most out of life while you have it. But the author of Hebrews knows better than this. The culprit behind our restlessness is not just the fear of death, but something else. Uh, But let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. Last week, Brianna uh, beautifully articulated how Jesus has opened up a better home for us, that he invites us into God's home and he shares himself with us and he shares everything he has with us. And this week, the author of Hebrews talks about what it's like to live in that home. We all know what it's like to walk into the place we call home. When we've been traveling, there's nothing quite like coming home. It's a feeling that's hard to describe. It's more about the presence than the furniture, the memories rather than the picture frames, uh, the invisible rather than the invisible. And what we'll discover in our passage today is that the house of God is a place of rest. Rest permeates every room. When we come home, we are entering into the presence of peace and rest. It's a lot like walking through the door and dropping your bags and just sprawling out on the couch. you know, Or a lot like drawing a hot bath and having a glass of wine. Or a lot like walking in the door and being embraced by your loved ones and feeling the stress of your day dissipate. These things give us a glimpse of the sort of peace and rest that God has in his house, but they're just that. They're only glimpses. And so as we work through our passage today, uh, the fundamental question that we need to be asking is this. How can we escape from restlessness into rest? How can we escape from restlessness into rest? If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Hebrews, which is toward the back of the Bible. You are handed a gray Bible on the way in. And if you don't actually own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. And if you don't have a Bible on you, everything you need will be on the screen. Hebrews chapter three, beginning in verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, "They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest." We already know that the author of Hebrews cherishes Scripture. It seems like at every opportunity, he's the Bible trivia guy. He just lays down some scripture quotes just like he does today with Psalm 95. But now we see that his conviction about scripture, its nature, what it is, is on the table for everybody to see. Look once more at verse seven. Do you see what the author says? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Do you see He doesn't say, therefore, as the psalm says, or therefore, as the psalmist says, or therefore, as David says. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. He's saying this about ordinary human words written by an ordinary man, and yet he is saying God is speaking. He's claiming that the words of a mere man are more than that. Putting it another way, what the Bible says, God says. What this psalm says, the Holy Spirit says. If you want a helpful book on the nature of Scripture, uh, uh, try Timothy Ward's short and insightful book, Words of Life. He writes, What we find in Scripture is an astoundingly close relationship between God himself and the words which he speaks. Thus, we may say, God has invested himself in his words. Or we could say that God has so identified himself with his words that whatever someone does to God's words whether it is to obey or to disobey, they do directly to God himself. The author of Hebrews and Timothy Ward are articulating the same point. How we respond to God's voice, how we respond to God's word, even if it is the written word of scripture, has a profound implication for us because as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. How we respond matters. And many of us here, I'm confident, would love to hear God speak. And yet the author warns us, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. It's kind of surprising, don't you think? The author assumes that if we were to hear God's voice, we wouldn't be immediately receptive. Rather, we would be guarded. And many of us could say, yeah, I want to hear God speak. But deep down, you don't really. Not really. We only want God to say what we want to hear. We don't want God to contradict us or challenge us. Many of us certainly don't want to have to submit and conform to something as archaic as the Bible. That's why there are countless creative ways to try to undermine what the text says, just so that the text doesn't apply to you. But the problem for us is that God has so closely invested himself and identified himself with Scripture that to reject the voice of Scripture is to reject God himself. To reject the voice of Scripture is to reject God himself. And we're reminded in our passage here that humanity has always had a hardness of heart toward God's voice. It's no different for us than it was for the people recorded in Scripture. Because Scripture doesn't tell The story of a whole bunch of people who heard God's voice and cherished it. It's too honest to do that. It tells the story of people who encounter God, who see God show up in profound and miraculous ways, and yet still reject Him, still refuse to listen. People who saw God and heard God and still say, No thanks. That's not what I want to hear. Now, this psalm, Psalm 95, is brought to our attention and it recounts what took place in the wilderness. You may recall Israel was delivered out of, G, uh, out of Egypt. Uh, they were delivered out of slavery. They're brought into the Sinai wilderness. And there they were given the promise of a new land, a promised land, the land of Canaan. And so they existed in this in-between place, having been delivered and waiting for the promise. And they existed in this wilderness, this wrestling between seeing how God has acted and waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And Psalm 95 is about a specific day in that wilderness space. A day when the Israelites said, enough is enough. And they formed the Back to Egypt Committee. This is the first committee in church history. And it is proof that most committees are just terrible. And in Numbers 14, we read all about it. We're told that the people of Israel grumbled against Moses saying, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or that we would have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose the leader and go back to Egypt. And thus the Back to Egypt committee was formed. Despite all the miraculous things God had done in their midst, they refused to take a single step further towards God. They didn't believe God would follow through on his promise. God's rest, which again in their minds was the promised land of Canaan, just seemed like a pipe dream. The world in front of them, the world that they could see, the world that they could touch, it contradicted this promise. They they only saw the desert. They only saw thorns and thistles. Not the pasture land that was promised, not this land overflowing with milk and honey. No more, they cried. Let's go back to Egypt. Which is why the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 12, take care, brothers. Now the ESV doesn't put sisters, but I'm going to add it because it does apply to you, sisters. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be, well, maybe it is just the brothers. Take care, brothers. There be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care, lest you fall away from the living God. Instead, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is already a challenging exhortation, wouldn't you say? And yet, this English translation of the Greek is far too pleasant and kind. Really, it reads like this. Beware, brothers and sisters, never... Never, don't even dare to cultivate an evil, unbelieving heart that will cause you to revolt against the living God. You see, a hard heart doesn't just cause you to fall away like, oh no, you know, a hard heart causes you to revolt against the living God, to resist him and choose your own ways. So perhaps what we really need to be asking is, how do our hearts end up in this place? How do our hearts end up in this state? Evil, unbelieving, hardened? Is that really how you would describe your heart? Is that really how you would describe your interior life? If we end up in that space, the author gives us the diagnosis. It's the result of the deceitfulness of sin. Eight years ago, Bernie Madoff, uh, 78 at the time, was sentenced to 150 years in prison, needless to say, he has a few more years remaining on his sentence. Madoff ran the biggest fraudulent scheme in U.S. history. He, he had a global Ponzi scheme and conned investors out of a total of $65 billion. And this wasn't over just a couple of months. This was over decades. And those affected ranged from uh, carpenter unions, uh, pensioners, you know, uh, to French aristocrats. Now, we could understand the naive person getting tricked. The average person who doesn't know much about investment or innocent grandparents. No, but many of the people he conned were financially savvy. They were intelligent. They were industry familiar. You know, they, they understood investment, and yet even they were duped. In his book, uh, the professor and author Stephen Greenspan, he writes about uh, gullibility. And he proposes that when emotions such as greed kick in, we tend to put our skepticism on the shelf. In other words, when something sounds too good to be true, greed will tell you to ignore that inclination. The irony is that Greenspan's book was published three days before the world learned about Madoff's scam, and he admitted publicly that he, the expert of gullibility, had also invested with Bernie Madoff, and he had lost a sizable chunk of his inheritance. Madoff appealed to people's desire for wealth. Madoff made promises of riches, shortcuts to get there. Uh, But most of his victims, actually only a few of his victims, can only expect to recover 54 cents to every dollar they invested. The majority will recoup little to nothing at all, and some of them even owe money as a result. Many lost much of their wealth. Some, their retirement plans. Others were bankrupted. So what is the deceitfulness of sin? Sin appeals to our desires. It promises great things, but it actually diminishes you. In reality, it leaves you with less, not with more. It may even leave you with nothing at all. And sin is not a word that we're all that comfortable with. Uh, So think of shortcomings. Think of mistakes. Think of times that you missed the mark and then realize that all of those things are not just falling short of your own ideals for your life and the way things should be, but also falling short of a perfect God who has just and good ways for all of creation. Sin is that. It's, it's falling short of the way life ought to be. And sin has a deceiving power, and it deceives us in three ways. First, sin convinces you that you're the exception to the rule. You can handle it. You've got it under your control. I can ima- I, you know, I can manage this one more time. Just one more time. Or even you know, I've worked so hard. I've followed Jesus so much. This indulgence, I deserve it. It deceives you into thinking that you're somehow above the norm, that you're the exception to the rule. Second, sin convinces you and I think this is the most prevalent in our society. It convinces you that it's not really sin. Sin convinces you and deceives you by telling you what you're doing is not really sin. And often it uses pleasure to do so. This feels right. How could it be wrong? The word for deceitfulness here has the implications of pleasure. So in other words, do not be deceived by the pleasantness of sin. In other words, you know, if, if, if sin was always terrible, right, just never felt good, we might sin from time to time still, but probably not to the same frequency. The problem with sin is that many sins are still pleasurable. The fruit in the garden, it wouldn't have been tempting if it was rotten and full of worms. You see, sin is often the distortion and misuse of good things, of good pleasures. The things inherently aren't sinful. It's our use and bending of them. But sin's greatest deception, the way it deceives us the most, is to turn you away from the living God. It tricks you to focus your attention on anyone or anything but God. When the author points us to the wilderness generation, he wants us to see how sin deceived the Israelites, to see only the things of the world, to see only the wilderness, but not the invisible to the human eye possibilities of God. All they saw was the desert. All they thought of was Egypt. These things were tangible. These were things they could understand. The promises of God, this land overflowing with milk and honey, it was too abstract. But the danger of being deceived is that you don't know it's happening. And when you come to realize it, it's usually too late. You're already invested. You're already neck deep. The damage is already done. And when you're entangled in the deceitfulness of sin, when you're deceived and you don't even know it, It will harden your heart toward God because it appeals to your desires. It promises you satisfaction, but ultimately it causes you to turn to anything else other than the living God. And so the author wants to draw out the outcome for us. When our hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, he writes in verse 18, to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief is a resounding no to God. It's a refusal to step toward him in faith. And it's an expression of sin's power in our lives. You may think you're saying no to God because you have an intellect, a rational reason Uh, that you have an argument against the existence of God. That's why you're saying no. You might be saying no because you have frustrations with God or you feel like God's unknowable. Or you might be saying no because you have questions and doubts that you still need to explore. And so you think your no is the product of your intellect or your emotions or your intelligence or your ability to weigh all of the facts for the creature to assess the creator. But Scripture suggests, Paul says in Colossians, that you're actually saying no to God because our natural minds are hostile towards God. That on our own devices, because of the deceitfulness of sin, we are saying no out of rebellion, not out of intellect, not out of reason, not out of any other purpose, other than the fact that we simply don't want to have to deal with living for the creator of the universe. That's why you're saying no so what? So what, You might say. I'm saying no. I don't believe. What's the big deal? What's the big deal if you don't believe? It keeps you from entering rest. Real rest. The author continues on in chapter four. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is not a matter of asking, did I get enough sleep last night? Do I need a nap? As you get older, you know the answers to those questions, no and yes. (laughs) The rest we're talking about is deeper than that. It's much deeper than that. It's about the sort of tiredness we experience that sleep doesn't seem to restore. The weariness we feel in ourselves that doesn't seem to fade, uh, that seems to accompany us wherever we go. One of the most acclaimed Portuguese poets, Fernando Pessoa, articulates this restlessness in a beautiful way. He wrote, My soul is impatient with itself, as with a bothersome child. Its restlessness keeps growing and is forever the same. Everything interests me, but nothing holds me. The same restlessness led the novelist John Steinbeck to write this. When the virus of restlessness begins to take possession of a wayward man, the victim must first find himself a good and sufficient reason for going. Consider the Israelites in the wilderness. Restlessness had pervaded the present in such a way that the past and the future became irrelevant. It didn't matter how they had seen God show up or what God promised to do. They were impatient They couldn't be held by remembering what had happened or the promise of what was to come because the virus of restlessness had taken a hold of them. And so they had to find a good and sufficient reason to leave God, to pursue a different way. And what was their reasoning? Slavery. Slavery in Egypt will be better than Moses and God in this wilderness. The Egyptians will treat us better. And once again, we see the deceitfulness of sin at play. It appeals to our desires. It appeals to our restlessness. And it promises good things. You don't like it here in the wilderness? I'll take you back to Egypt. Everything will be better there, even if you're a slave. But what did sin actually deliver to the Israelites? They all perished in the wilderness. It promised slavery, but it delivered death because the power of sin is death. Now, you and I can stand here thousands of years removed, and we see this for what it is. Why on earth would you choose slavery in a country rather than freedom in the wilderness? It seems like nonsense from our perspective, and yet we repeat this mistake time and time and time again. We repeat it when we choose intimate relationships over God. When we compromise our convictions about faith and settle for someone who doesn't share our faith in Jesus Christ or when we indulge in pornography or any sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. What are we doing? We're settling for the here and now, the belief that an intimate relationship, that romance, that pleasure will settle our restlessness rather than the promise of God's rest. We repeat it when we put down all of the spiritual disciplines because they don't deliver the same immediate gratification that we receive from Netflix or hikes or food. Or whatever your favorite activity may be. We settle for the here and now, the belief that indulging and enjoying creation again and again in many different forms and ways will settle that restlessness we feel within ourselves instead of turning to the rest of God. We repeat it when we choose passive doubt. Not the sort of doubt that sincerely wrestles and struggles with questions and seeks answers. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sort of doubt where you dwell in your uncertainty and you do nothing to search for answers. You just stay there in doubt. And you say, it's God who's making me restless. God's not providing the answers. God's the one who has the problem. But you never stop to question your doubt and say, maybe it's your unresolved doubts, your unsearched doubts that are not being resolved, and that's why you're restless. In thousands of ways, thousands of ways, we settle for what the world has to offer us over God. We take the here and now over the promise. And it's because deep down, deep down, and we know this deep, we're restless. Our souls are impatient like a bothersome child, and sin The deceitfulness of sin appeals to this restlessness. Our desire for satisfaction, our desire for rest, and it promises it'll deliver, but it always comes with a cost. You have to take your eyes off of the living God. You have to turn away from him. And in fact, you can fall away, but you're actually revolting against him. And you'll end up in the desert of unbelief in the land of restlessness. You see, it doesn't matter where the Israelites will go, whether they stay in the wilderness, whether they go to Egypt, or even if they arrived in Canaan in their current state. They would still be restless. If they reject the living God, they'll be restless. And it doesn't matter where we turn to either. If you turn away from God, you're going to remain restless. If you have no faith or if your belief is eroding, if your heart is hardening or if your heart is already hard, That is why you can't seem to find lasting satisfaction, why you oscillate back and forth between happiness and discontent, or why you feel exhausted no matter how much you sleep, because the sort of rest we're talking about is not available in the world. You can't buy it. You can't attain it. You can't research it. You're not going to find it outside of God. Now, I've quoted St. Augustine on this, this matter More times than I count. I searched my sermons. It's like 52 times. Uh, But I'm gonna quote it again because this is really important. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord. Our heart is restless. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. When the author of Hebrews talks about rest, it's not any ordinary rest. It's God's rest. It's his Sabbath rest. And unless you're on the path towards this ultimate rest, you're going to be plagued by restlessness because your heart cannot begin to truly rest until it rests in God. So let's take a moment to talk about the rest of God. In the Hebraic imaginary, the climax of creation is the seventh day from an explosion out of nothing, out of nothingness, countless stars and galaxies make up our universe. And yet the pinnacle of everything that had been made was the seventh day when God did what? rested. Think about that. This mind-blowing universe that we've begun to observe, even just a fraction of what we've seen, the best of all that has been made is what? It's rest. On the seventh day, God himself rested. Now, this wasn't because God was tired from creating. It's not like he went and created like some divine, epic beanbag chair to just lay back and chill out for all of eternity. Now, it's quite. he might have done that, but this is not what it's about. Rather, God rested to delight and enjoy all that had been made to enjoy a creation that he had deemed over and over good, good, very good, good. And this rest is rightfully understood as shalom, which means peace. It's not just peace. There's more to it. It's a peace that translates as an experience of goodness, an experience of stillness, of a wholeness that pervades all that is seen and unseen. A peace where there is no disorder or chaos because everything is in its right and ordered place. In the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, everything God made was good, and this goodness was meant to pervade all of existence. We are made to live in this ongoing state of peaceful rest, enjoying a creation that was good, 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 very good. But due to unbelief, humanity forsook this inheritance. That's what happened in the garden. The garden isn't just about God giving some arbitrary rule and Adam and Eve breaking it. The garden challenges us to see That goodness, that wholeness, that delight, that true freedom actually has constraints. It's not a free for all. That limits actually cause flourishing and goodness. And Adam and Eve were imposed one limit. Don't eat from this one tree. And yet they could not trust that God truly had their goodness in mind. All they saw was the limitation. All they saw was what they could not do. And they were tempted, and they fell. And ever since, as a result, humanity has traded the rest of our creator for the here and now of creation. For the false promise of a limitless existence where we can do anything we want. Which is why the author exhorts us, therefore, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Here's the beauty of this passage. The offer still stands. The promise remains open. You can still enter the rest of God. There remains a path that leads to this ultimate Sabbath rest of God. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive to enter rest. Rest. We're already restless. We're already tired. We already feel like we're doing too much. We already feel like we're on the brink of exhaustion and being overloaded in life. And now we're told to strive. The paradox, strive to rest. Work harder to rest. Why on earth should we do that? Here's why. Verses 12 through 13. This is the climax of the argument. For. In other words, because. Strive to rest because. Because. A double-edged sword is a dangerous weapon. It's a good weapon to have, especially if you're fighting someone with a sling sword. Like, huzzah, you know, double-edged sword, dangerous weapon. <laughs> what the author is trying to draw in the parallel is that the word of God is infinitely more powerful and infinitely more dangerous. And why is it important to know that the word of God can pierce through us unlike any weapon formed on earth? Why is it important to know that? It means that God knows us through and through. God knows you better than you know yourself. All of us in this room, to varying degrees, at this moment are deceived by sin. All of us, myself included. The problem with deception is you don't always know you're being deceived. And yet, before God, you're naked and exposed. He knows how you're deceived. He knows uh, your secrets. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows the hard parts. He knows the parts that are wrestling with unbelief. He knows the good and the beauty. He sees it all through and through. And before the word of God, it's living and active. You can't hide. You can't dupe him. You're seen through and through. And God knows that we cannot enter into his rest by our own effort alone. And God is not calling us to strive to earn our way into his rest. That's not what this is about. If that was the case, we'd never get there. You could never earn a spot in God's rest. You could never endure long enough or do all of the right things. You'd get tired. You'd get bored. You'd get discontent. You'd settle for the things that satisfy more quickly. Netflix, movies, whatever. It's immediate. It works. It works. So what would you? We do? Well, let's return to our guiding question. How can we escape from restlessness into rest? We must strive. We must strive. I'm not going to deny that. We must put great effort. Many of you have done triathlons or marathons or half marathons. I've seen you train. You know how to put an effort. We must strive to trust God's promise of rest. You see, that's what happened in the wilderness generation. That's what they failed to do. They stopped believing. They stopped trusting. Their hearts were hardened and they turned away from God. Here's a question. What did they have to do to inherit the promised land? Nothing. They did nothing to be delivered out of Egypt. That was God's initiative. They did nothing to be provided for in the wilderness. God provided for them miraculously. He simply asked them to trust him and follow his lead. They didn't have to do anything to inherit the promise except trust God, and they failed to do that. You see, the author is drawing this comparison of the wilderness generation because the church is a wilderness generation. We've seen Jesus deliver us. We've heard about his profound work on the cross. We know that it guts the power of sin in our lives. We've tasted the goodness of this redemption and we have a promise that Christ will return, that he will make all things new, that he'll grant a new heavens and a new earth, that he'll eliminate evil and suffering, and that he'll wipe away every tear, that death will be buried in its grave. We have this promise. And yet we live here. Between the past and the future. Between deliverance and promise And what the author says is that we must strive to enter the rest that Jesus has opened up for us. And here's how we strive. We put every effort into enduring in faith, to sustaining our belief, to continuing on in trust. As the author says in verse three, we who have believed enter that rest. See, you can only enter God's rest through faith. Which is why the author says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what the central message of this book. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The the issue is not what you'll do tomorrow or in the future. The issue is not what you did yesterday or in the past. This is a matter of today. Skim our passage with me here. Chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Rebellion. Verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Chapter four, verse seven, God points to a certain day. Which day do you guess? Today, saying through David, today, if you heard his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think the author of Hebrews might be trying to tell us something. How will you respond to Jesus? The living and active Word of God. How will you respond to Him today? Right now. Not when you leave this room, right now. How will you respond to Him? With faith or unbelief? With obedience or disobedience? With trust or distrust? With allegiance? Or skepticism and cynicism. But what we do not want to miss in this passage is that the author does not envision us striving toward Jesus on our own. Look again at verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can't strive alone, you need the church. Look at the people around you. Sorry, this is what you get. This is who you've got. Now you're great people. See, on our own, we can all be picked off one by one. But together, the author says, we need each other. Why is that? Why do we need each other to exhort one another daily? Not just like, hey, once a week, going to meet up with my accountability partner, but really, we're just going to drink coffee and talk about everything but the dark secrets of our hearts. Why do we need this daily? Because we all exist in little isolated bubbles. We all live in tunnel vision where we don't have a point of reference to adequately assess ourselves. You see, we like to think that we truly understand ourselves, that we truly get ourselves, that you know yourself better than anyone possibly could, but it's not true because we can be deceived. And if we're being deceived, we don't know it. And that's why you need spiritual friends you can trust and rely on. Friends who will use the word of God with gentleness and grace and say, hey, I see this area in your life. And I see this area in my own life too. So I'm not standing above you. But here's what the word of God says and here's how we're acting. Let's strive toward Jesus together. Fail as we may. You cannot pursue Jesus alone you will burn out, you will get too tired. This passage ends on the nature of the word of God. It ends with this reflection on what God's word is because your heart will not be malleable if you do not submit to the word of God. Now I I get it, I feel it. Like those words coming out of my mouth feels like super conservative. I get it, but this is what scripture says your heart will not be malleable if you do not submit to God's word. The word of God and the word of God alone in the hands of the spirit can cut away your sin, can cut through your hardness of heart. And if you don't give it authority, you cannot hear Jesus speak because you'll pick and choose what suits you. You'll have your own ideas about what Jesus should be, but it's it's just that. It's just your own ideas if you don't recognize that God has identified himself with scripture and invested into it, if you don't read it and digest it, if you don't allow others to challenge you with it, your heart will harden through the deceitfulness of sin. Your heart will harden through the deceitfulness of sin. So today, today of all days, right now, believe in Jesus once again. Retrust in him, re-believe in him, day by day, but start with today. And take another step on this well-worn path towards God's eternal rest. And when you do, the good news of the gospel is that you can experience peace and rest here now. What St. Paul describes as the peace that surpasses understanding. You see, it surpasses understanding because you receive it in circumstances where it doesn't make sense that you feel a sense of peace. I've seen this with people who are suffering greatly, where their lives are are falling apart or where they're suffering loss. And they say, yes, life hurts right now. And yet I feel peace in the presence of Jesus. People who are are facing tremendous relational pressures or difficulties and say, yet when I come to Jesus in prayer, it doesn't make sense. I feel peace. When we strive to be with Jesus, what's happening is we're striving to remain with Him. And where are we with Him? In His home, a place of rest, a place of peace. Rest is what it's like to abide with Jesus. And so we get tastes of God's rest here and now. But that's all they are. They're just tastes. They're just the appetizers of the entree, the peace that Christ will give you now because he's a good shepherd. It's just a glimpse of the eternal rest that is to come. So let's return to where we began. Many of us have had this thought. When we die, we'll rest. So for now, let's strive to make the most out of life. But the scriptures offer a profoundly better thought. Yes, you will rest when you die, but not because you're dead and gone, but because you're finally truly alive, fully alive in the eternal rest of God. So today, if you strive to fix your eyes on Jesus, you will find that rest and you can indeed rest.